Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 297, part one of my conversation with Jordan Nielsen. Let's get right to it. As I mentioned on the show the last couple of weeks, I'm presenting a group of interviews I've done with recently graduated Masters in Percussion Performance students from the University of Missouri, out of the studio of previous podcast guest and my colleague, Megan Arns. What's great is that all of them, after their graduations, are headed in completely different paths. The guest of the past two weeks, Stephen Landy, just finished up at Mizzou and is now back in Florida, working with many of the high school drum lines from where he grew up and pushing forward with his career from that point forward. This week and next, we'll be talking to the second of the recently graduated Masters of Music and Percussion graduates and Stephen's fellow percussionist in the new music ensemble at Mizzou, Jordan Nielsen. Similarly to Stephen, Jordan came from well outside the state of Missouri, in this case Utah, to do his master's, though, in Jordan's case, he will be staying in Columbia for the foreseeable future to start his career there. We'll get to a bit of that in this week's portion and more for next week. Due to not only his work in the new music ensemble here, but throughout the percussion studio, his solo work and gigging around town, it's possible that Jordan played the most music of anyone over these past three years. As you'll hear, Jordan's interest in presenting a lot of concerts has been ingrained since his undergrad, and he fully got involved in the community in Columbia very quickly here. He's always been open to all experiences and does so with a strong performance ethic and a great attitude. It was a lot of fun talking to him for these conversations. So this week, you'll hear about Jordan's various recitals, the new music ensemble experience, growing up in Utah, his time at Southern Utah University, studying with previous podcast guest Lynn Vartan, and getting connected to Mizzou. Next week, You'll hear the rest of the story. So here we go. We recorded this portion of the interview over Zoom on May 19th, 2022, and it begins right now. All right, ready to go? Yeah, I think so. We'll see what happens. (laughs) All right, Jordan. I'm going to start with uh, your recitals that you've done, uh, your master's recitals. Tell me about some of the lit you played on that, your interests in in showing your range of stuff that you've done in your time at Mizzou. Um, when I first started my master's, um, I knew that I wanted to do a recital every semester. So that would have been three recitals at that time. And then with the COVID um, remote or hybrid semesters, um, that got put on hold. And, but I was still able to pump out three recitals, which was the goal. Um, and I wanted each recital have a different theme to it. The first recital that I ended up doing, um, would have been spring of 2021. And that recital was supposed to be the new music-y recital. Basically it was a lot of pieces that really focused on texture, um, and things like that. So I actually called or I titled the recital as Sonic Texture. So I had John Cage's Child of Tree on there. Um, I had a piece called, 
Oh, it's a Joe Moore piece, Rain, and just other pieces that are um, just focused on sonic texture. Some people kind of said that it was kind of like taking a sound bath almost, because if you just close your eyes, there's just lots of crackling and other little things going on, right? Um, plus in that in our resonant hall, I think a lot of those pieces work really well in that room. And so that was the point of that recital. My second recital that I did was in fall of 2021. And that piece was supposed to be geared or centered around um, keyboard percussion, because that is a strong uh, part of my background with percussion. It was the type of percussion that really got me into the field. Um, a lot of that was marimba related. And so that was all keyboard rep, um, lots of four mallet stuff, a lot of pieces that I've always wanted to do and never had the chance. I used uh, Christos Hot Seas in the Fire of Conflict, which is marimba tape and cretales. John Sothis's Kyoto on the program as well, which is two marimbas, two vibes. Fantastic. I'm glad we got to do that before we took it to the PASIC competition as well. Uh, that was that, that recital. Piece, and then the piece for vibes with the bowed. That was like you said, they wasn't, didn't you say that was the most uh, tonal piece you've ever played in it? In it? <laughs> do you remember this? Yes. Oh, oh. It's a great piece. I was not familiar with it. I haven't, I haven't thought about these programs in sure. so long. Yeah, that I do remember that piece being extremely intimidating because it was the most tonal on the program. And it was just, yeah, I mean, if the bows, the thing with bows is like, if it doesn't speak well, it just kind of ruins the phrasing or, um, or if you, there's always that moment where you're pulling the bow up and you're like, yes, it sounded so great. And then the tip of the bow hits the bar and you're like, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> Completely ruins it, but you just have to, Nope, nothing happened. Nothing <laughs> happened. Um, oh, another piece on that program was um, Annika Sokolovsky's um, Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which uh, which has vibraphone played with on played by four people um, with banjo picks on the vibraphone. It also includes some marimba and some singing. Uh, and love that piece. It's really easy to put together, but it's a really powerful piece. Um, it's always an audience favorite. Every I think I've had the chance to perform it in, pro, in front of four or five different audiences now. And every single time people are just, you know, it has so many different um, timbral contrasts and it's just really joy. It's a really wonderful piece to listen to. Um, so love that piece. Um, and then my actual degree recital was this spring. And that was, um, I titled the, the recital Luminous Cycles, which was a reference to um, a marimba solo that I played on it called Luminosity by Thomas Golinski. Um, one of my fav most favorite marimba solos. Cycles refers to just pieces that have been important in my degree pass. And a lot of these pieces have actually connected me to other parts of my percussion career or um, or just other people in the in the percussion community, like the piece Gravity by Mark Mellitz. I love that piece. And I first heard that piece in 2016 at the Heartland Marimba Festival out West. And then that piece actually ended up becoming a connection, 
or that festival and hearing that piece ended up being a connection to Dr. Arns and then getting me to Mizzou. So, and Luminosity was a piece that um, one of my friends in undergrad played a lot. And that was a really, um, I just love that piece. And we worked on that project. I actually made like a slideshow to go with it for her senior recital. And now it's kind of a, now, so it's all these full circle moments. Um, and then some of the, some of the pieces just had cyclical motives in them. And so that's another part of the reference. So, um, yeah. So, oh, I, um, another piece I did on that program was aphasia by Mark Applebaum, which for those that don't know, this piece is just, um, me sitting in a chair, staring directly at the audience and, um, doing choreographed gestures to the track. These gestures are highly specific and there's, I think, 230 different gestures in that piece. And the piece is about 10 minutes long. And it has to be done completely memorized. There's no way you can look at the music because I think there's like 25 pages. So, um, and you have to have a completely blank facial expression the entire time. Which was honestly the hardest part. <laughs> um, but it's a piece that I saw at PASIC a couple of years ago. And I was just very captivated by the absurdity of the piece. And I love being able to bring unique experiences to audiences. Because to me, like, that's the beauty of live performances. It's a, you just give them a unique scenario and they just have to take it in. They don't have a choice but to just sit there and just react however they will. So it's, it's so different than watching something online like watching aphasia online, it's not nearly as captivating because you don't get the, the awkwardness and the absurdity in it. So did you see it? It was, a, I think it was last year that, um, Carly Vina did it. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was last year. Wow. In my head, that was like two years ago, but that, that is the performance I was thinking of. Yeah. She and at the time amazing. I was still trying to program my recital Yeah. and I was sitting there watching it. Um, I was thinking of her performance specifically. Um, I just remember sitting there and being like, whoa, this is so cool. I just love that I'm having these reactions that I didn't expect. Yeah. The prime things that you were doing here was the new music ensemble. You know, in the in the three years that you were here, what kind of ways did the ensemble evolve, change, grow? What did you see as part of your learning experience with that group? I think I'm just going to talk about like things that I learned from it because I have some complaints <laughs> and that's been my mindset for a little bit. There's nothing major. There's nothing major, but when I was auditioning here, that was the spot that I was really going for. I thought I wanted to teach a bunch. So the percussion TA like doing methods and lessons and stuff was really attractive to me and I would have loved to have done it anyway. I still love teaching privately it's actually one of my favorite things to do um but with the new music ensemble here um the way it stands is it um the official orchestration for the new music ensemble is a piero ensemble um that's getting expanded a little bit now actually in the coming years um they've because some of the some of the pieces take more time to learn or just logistically in general, it makes sense to have a few extra musicians, especially percussion. 
Originally, the ensemble only had one percussion spot. And there was an at-large spot in the ensemble that could be filled by a, um, a brass player or a reed player or something, um, or voice. Um, but often it had been filled by a secondary percussionist, which is extremely helpful. If there's really complicated one-person percussion parts, we can split them into two. So the other uh, percussionist, the, while I've been here, has been Stephen Landy, and he and I have split up you know, we split up everything very evenly and it also gave us a chance to both be able to play different, um, lots of different things as well. For example, there was one semester where he really wanted to play some more vibraphone. And so he had a lot of vibraphone stuff and I had a lot of drum stuff. And then this last semester, we kind of just split it whatever we wanted. There's a, a Druckmann piece that I'm forgetting the name of, um, but the piece is supposed to be played by one percussionist and it's going across, um, marimba, vibraphone, toms, bass drum, like things that are near impossible. It's it going to be really hard to play with one person. So being able to split that up between two people, I mean, they were very, really, really fast changes in that piece. So I don't know how it, it's written for one person, but it's really hard. So, um, so that's been fantastic. Um, the point of this ensemble, though, at this institution is to really facilitate student composers and be able to workshop with them. So in any given month, we would have a workshop with a new piece that was either in progress or um, had been w written for the ensemble a year ago or so, and now we're actually going to perform it. So it's been wonderful that every single concert that I've been on with this group has had multiple premieres on it. And for me, that's, it's pretty rewarding and it's great that they can write freely for percussion so that we have a chance to actually really help them with learning how to write for the instrument. And especially uh, there's so many extended techniques that they always want to use. Always, always. There's always a super ball. There's always a bow. <laughs> Those are just normal parts of my everyday life was grabbing a bow and a super ball <laughs> or tinfoil for yeah. a while or the coins. I, for a long time, I kept a little uh, Tupperware thing of coins and paper clips in my mallet bag with tape because I had to tape them to a Tam Tam all the time or, or <laughs> vibraphone or whatever. Huh. I had, I, you know, I played a hairdryer in a concert that's happened. Mm -hmm. And of course I waved it above my head while it was going. Nice. Played toy piano a couple of times. So one of the projects that we got to do, so was with Mizz so Mizzou's journalism school had this project and this project started years ago, year, um, years before I got here. Um, and it's finally actually been premiered now within the last six months. And it was a documentary film about Pedro Zamora, who was on the MTV show, The Real World. And the new music ensemble was actually the ensemble that recorded the soundtrack for this documentary. Um, and the soundtrack was written by um, a previous new music initiative composer, master student named Daniel Vega. He's now based in um, Portland. And he wrote, he wrote a fabulous, absolutely gorgeous soundtrack and and for a lot of us, you know, the story, while a lot of us didn't really watch the real world when it was airing, we've seen a bunch, we, you know, a bunch of us started watching the show 
but our directors, you know, saw this happen in real time. This is, you know, this is all coming out of the AIDS crisis. And so the, the, the documentary is extremely emotional and recording that. Um, and then a year later getting to see it, um, in a, in a pre-showing and hearing it like in the Missouri theater on a big screen and then seeing your name come up in the credits in a big theater and the university president was there and a bunch of people from the city were there. And that was pretty cool. Um, and yeah, it just like, it was such a powerful project to be a part of and It's been sent to a ton of different film festivals. I think one of the festivals that it got, it got a lot of traction with was the Atlanta film festival. And I think it, it's been to a few others, but I, I don't remember um, all of those other names. So, but an awesome experience. Oh, it was so much fun. I, I got to see it. It was, it was a really good. Oh yeah. You were at the theater, huh? Yeah. It was cool. yeah I mean, I, was, I remember I watched those episodes when they came out. I remember it quite vividly. Yeah. And I rem- I mean, I know, I know tons of people that already knew of him. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and it's crazy because the documentary, like they were able, this is all before COVID had happened, but they were able to interview like Anthony Fauci. Mm-hmm. And then there's also stuff about, they also got to um, interview President Clinton for this, for the documentary, which is pretty crazy that it, you know, we've, that this project made it up that high. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That was, that was, yeah, that was really good. Um, I had, uh, I've already talked to Steve. Um, so, so one oh, cool. of the, uh, and Emily actually as well, but, um, oh, cool. one of the things he, he mentioned about the new music ensemble, there are a couple of things I'm curious to get your feedback on. One is mm-hmm. that he said, one of the things that, that did help very much having two percussionists is being able to load, load equipment. <laughs> Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> Which is not, yeah. I mean, that's not a minor thing, actually. <laughs> no. <laughs> so the New Music Initiative or um, had this memorial concert for Dean Menderden at the Chauvin Concert Hall in St. Louis on May 3rd or 4th. Um, it was the first Tuesday of the month. And yeah, you know, we didn't play a lot of notes necessarily, and there wasn't a ton of gear. But one of the pieces of gear that had to be taken was a five octave marimba. And we only had one van, so you have to take it apart. And any percussionist knows that the moment you have to take a five octave, it's like, oh God, how are we getting it there? Can we rent one? <laughs> can someone drop it off? Or are we just packing it up? You know? And like I can build one by myself, but I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to. And then do a sound check immediately after? No. Plus we had to tear down a vibraphone and we also had to take a drum set. And we had the other members of the ensemble and staff helping us load and unload, but they could only carry gear. They, they're, they're always so hesitant to right. put stuff up, which is so funny to me. It's like, it's a drum. It's, a, it's okay. <laughs> Moving gear, having another partner in crime, that yeah. alone makes it worth it yeah. in my eyes. So, yeah. <laughs> one, one of the other things he mentioned is, and this kind of gets to some of what you did for your recitals, is that because that ensemble is playing new music all the time that it can, it can be both really invigorating to do that, but can also be take a lot out of you to try to, when you have pieces that you have no reference point for. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, the thing is, like you said, 
you know, when we, when we spend so much time studying things in classical romantic mm-hmm. rep, you know, there are performance practices in place. Right. And we spend a lot of time trying to replicate those. And that's a very different mindset. That is, um, you know, there's wiggle room within those, but if you play a Bach fugue for someone, they definitely are, especially if they are another musician, they have some very specific expectations. Usually Um, that's just the way things are. That's how the orchestral world works. And we just kind of copy that a lot. Um, with all this rep and premieres for new music ensemble, we have to, with either the description or the notation or conversations with the composers, we have to take whatever sound they are hearing in their head or they they have replicated in a computer. And we have to try and figure out how to recreate that. So you kind of, and this is always the part of music that, we don't because we don't spend time on it. Sometimes I, it gets really tricky for me to figure that out because you really have to kind of turn into a sound designer of some kind to figure that out. You know, um, I was having a conversation while while helping Alarmal Sound set up about a year ago when they did a performance at the beginning of the twenty twenty one school year. They had a they had a performance at the school. And I was talking to Matt, one of the percussionists about this. And, you know, he said, he was saying that, um, this was about one of the Aphex twins pieces that they, that they do all the time. I can't remember which one, but he's always been looking for this specific bass drum sound. He's like, I still haven't found it. He's like, but I think here's the answer. And it's supposed to be a kick drum. And it was, um, a large, a very old, large red Ludwig bass drum we have that's sitting on the ground with a kick pedal attached to it. And it's tuned really high with a giant towel on it. And it's super dampened. And then he was like, I think I found it. This is it. And that's like one specific sound. He's played the piece a ton. Um, But for us in, you know, with, especially with um, younger composers, I found that sometimes they're like, yeah, the sound is just like this. And, okay, what is that? And they may not know enough about the gear or about percussion instruments at that time to help you figure that out. So you really have to like push your own boundaries. And we just get so used to certain practices on certain instruments. It's kind of hard to remember sometimes that like there are other ways to get sounds out of them or different sticks and stuff. So you know, there, there are rehearsals where we are like bringing in every stick and mallet we have um, and trying to figure out things or it's like, okay, I want this to be a cajon, but then we got to try all the cajones in the building, you know, and we would spend a lot of time doing stuff like that. Well, I mean, would you figure out that a lot of times the composers wouldn't like you would produce something and they would they just go like, oh, that's I mean, sometimes it'd be like, oh, that's fine. No, I was going to say, or would they be very much like, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. Like, were they just kind of waiting for the Hmm. sound they want? Yeah, I think it completely depends on the piece, the the aesthetic of the piece, and the composer, and just the composer's, uh, I guess, temperament. You Hmm. know, some of them have a really, you know, they've spent a lot, some of them, 
they know they just want a general sound of some kind. Others, you know, and often you can see this in their notation, the more detailed their notation is, the more detailed they want the sound, right? And they want that sound to be replicated. And I, I find this is a really weird phenomenon, actually, with trying to put... So a lot of a lot of composers are writing in the computer now. Yeah. Right. They and in order to write in the computer, they take sample sounds, right? They get, for example, like symbol bowing a symbol. It's really hard to do that consistently. Especially when you're in a school environment and the same symbol may not always be available. Right. Or the same bow may not always be available. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they just don't speak with the same overtones at the same time. It also depends on where you grab the symbol. I learned that you can grab the symbol in different places and get different overtone series. And there's actually a system to that, which is really cool. I, no one would have ever have taught me that because, <laughs> duh, duh. But, but yeah, if, when people are writing in the computer, they take a sample sound and then they hear that sound over and over and over and over again when they're writing and listening back constantly. So they've heard this specific sound a thousand times in their head I have no idea what they want by the notation on the page, but they have that very specific sound. And so sometimes I have to really say like, can you just play the sample for me? Like bring your computer, play the sample for me or send me the MIDI, please. You know, Um, because otherwise I, yeah. Or sometimes they say, well, it's almost like this, but it, can it be more crunchy? Can it be more warm? Can it be more bright? And depending on the instrument, it's like, what does that actually mean? Or there's the never ending problem in percussion of they say, well, can you play softer? Or they say, you're too loud. Can you use a softer mallet? I can also play quieter too. (laughs) Like, do you want a timbral difference? Or do you want a a difference in dynamic? So it's just trying to learn. For me, it was a learn. There was a big learning curve on how to really communicate with these creators because and they're all, all at different levels. You know, we have people that we, you know, we play, we, we have premiered pieces by established composers, um, composers that are doing their masters, and then freshmen. Those are, and some of them aren't, aren't even music composition majors either. Some of them are just taking composition lessons. Or there is a retired professor of, I think, biology, my first semester. He was taking lessons with Dr. Heredia and he wrote this really kind of very cute um, like music you would put in a candy shop commercial with like, it was in C major, super tone, no accidentals, no major, just very charming. Um, of course, all the fast notes were on the xylophone and it's in C, in C major, which is the hardest key to play accurately on. In the side on the xylophone, <laughs> that's the part I got. It's like great, thanks. That sounds like I was like, that's Jordan's nightmare right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best part about new music is that usually it's not so tonal, so like there's there's less pressure right. to play C major perfectly quickly, you know, or whatever, right? right yeah, it's not like missing a note a note in a Bach piece, right? Versus like, um you know, playing tin cans. <laughs> yeah. So. Good point. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember getting that xylophone piece and it was a sight reading session. Oh, great. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I just thought, you know, it's like, oh, 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 God. Yeah. But it's fine. And it was my, it was like three weeks into my first semester here. So I was like pretty intimidated and like the workload was just really setting in. Yeah. And it was a Monday morning and like, yeah. Anyway. There are all sorts of pressures built into the situation. Is what you're saying. Oh yeah, yeah, but it, it worked out fine. Yeah, it was a fun piece. I really liked it. I really loved it actually. So, one of the things that the I, I ask when I you know when I do get to talk to the master students here is you know what kinds of things among your fellow cohort master students, um, among either or either your uh either your percussion colleagues or your new music colleagues or whoever um you know what kinds of things do you all talk about or think about related to music or life as a musician or employment like what kinds of things are are you all thinking about right now that's a pretty big question because we know that it's getting harder and harder to be in the arts right there's a lot of people that want to be in it but the arts are expensive and they're always like 99% of the time they're nonprofit. Right. Mm. So that's tricky. Um, and then you throw COVID on top of that and that's taken everything and just messed it up big time. So I think in terms of music, I think a lot of us, I've had a lot of conversations with my colleagues and, um, some some teachers in the community as well about like why do we teach music why do we want to stay in it what do we want our students to actually get out of it and really it's just that often more and more especially for people that don't necessarily want to make music their career but you are a mentor in their life in some way it really is just about like learning how to accomplish giant projects right um, like I'm kind of switching back into drumline mode right now because I work with the Hickman high school marching band. And t- today, actually we, we have our final audition day for drumline. Um, and then we're going to start summer rehearsals. Um, and it's, I, I have a lot of young kids coming in and a lot of these kids have had a lot of hybrid or remote learning semesters while learning music in middle school for the first time, you know, like truly getting into the program. And so luckily that I'm so excited because there's so many kids coming in and they all have great technique and they can read music. It's fantastic. Um, which is, I was kind of getting nervous because, you know, the odds are is that people weren't going to know material as well, but they are doing well. So it's really exciting, but you know, it's just, we want them to learn, how to take on like a big project like doing a marching band show it's a long 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 process right very different than how we gauge the rest most people gauge the rest of their lives usually if the task takes too long to complete it's just not going to get done or they divide it up to more people right you know if you go through life you know not being able to, to figure out these bigger things um that's not going to help you. You know, it's really, it's, it's really great just for their own sake and um, just in their ability to accomplish things and find value and reward in these hard projects. And then, it, and then it's also just to learn how to 
um, create something with other people as well. It's a lot about teamwork. Um, and it's, it's also a lot about just like learning, you know, working hard and, and learning, I, I don't want to say like learning how to love music because I think all these kids really do love music. But I think when you, when you create these strong memories, you know, you gain supporters for the rest of the people that actually are trying to do this for a career. And not to say that they're only there to like help pay, pay people in the future, but you know, it's just a reminder that the arts are really important. And I think in the U S having something or, you know, keeping that at the front of people's minds that the arts are really important in, the, in general. I mean, so many people wouldn't have gotten through all the like stay at home orders and lockdowns and stuff like that without entertainment in the arts. Right. I mean, that's the first thing everyone went to is just like, Oh, I'm just going to enjoy entertainment of some kind now. And we all seek it out every day. There's not one person that doesn't seek out music or a TV show, which has, has lighting. It has theater. It has, you know, you know, so many different aspects. Um, So I think just, that um yeah i think um i've had several people in that are in the same program as me that have has kind of we've kind of all agreed on that and i think we all also are trying to figure out how to make portfolio careers really work and trying to the hard part is really trying to find the areas and the programs in which you are interested in that you can then try to balance them together in your life. Um, because right now the chances of people getting the big full-time jobs is just dropping more and more and more. The field is so oversaturated with advanced degrees and things like that right now for the number of jobs. I mean, how many jobs open up in a year for a college teaching job? So few. So why spend enormous amounts of money on degrees if you're not going to get a job you know and that's and this is a problem that people have been seeing coming more and more and then i think covid made it even worse because so many schools had massive budget cuts so i think a lot of people are trying to figure out like how they can have a comfortable living but knowing that they have to have a portfolio career that's just a standard now um which i feel like i'm kind of right in the middle of that right now it's like trying to combine all the different things that I'm working for and making sure that they can work together. And it's funny because it's like, yeah, you're employed, but you're also kind of self-employed in the same way, but not everything you're doing is contract work, but it basically is you have to, you have to manage yourself like you're a contract worker, which for me that, and a lot of my colleagues, the problem there is that the work-life balance gets so thin so fast because it's just you all the time. You were your own boss 90% of the time or hundred percent of the time. So, and when it involves paying your bills, it's like, okay, you really have to learn how to manage yourself. And so going back to what I was talking about with teaching young kids, you know, teaching them how to learn music and be responsible for their portion of the work. I'm seeing now like, everything that they're doing, I can see how I need to do that now. So um, there's definitely lots of eye-opening moments when I see kids learn how to do things. It's like, oh, that's what I should be doing. Thanks for teaching me. <laughs> yeah, that, sorry. I know I jumped around a lot, but I think that's 
mostly my answer. I think you were getting to this, but is the realization that sometimes the portfolio part of your music part is not even your main job. Yeah, that's true. For some people, it really isn't. Some people, they may gig a lot, but um, one big employer in the area for, for us is uh, Veterans United. I know a lot of people that have worked there or they work um, like, I know someone that works in admissions yeah. full time, but they gig a lot. Yeah. So, you know, then it just turns into extra cash, even though they have advanced degrees in music performance or teaching. But then I also know of plenty of teachers in other areas. And we all, I'm sure we all know this, like, you know, public teachers <laughs> isn't quite the biggest salary. You know, they're, they're baristas in the evenings and on weekends and stuff. It, you know, or you teach private lessons to help supplement, you know, to pay the car payment or whatever it is, you know? And I don't, and I'm, you know, I don't even have a family, so, but it's still tricky. So yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of these conversations going on right now. Yeah. Well, and not, and as you said, also the, the fact that it's both the work, the, the, the skewing of work-life balance, but also mm-hmm. the fact that it's, it's frequently, it's you all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and something for me, my mind compartmentalizes pretty heavily. I've learned for me with my work, I like to have my work be compartmentalized by physical locations. Mm-hmm. So there's certain types of work that I do at home, which I try to keep very little actually. I, I'm, a, I'm someone that doesn't really do well with work at home type methods because it it's home in my head. And so home is supposed to be relaxation or like laundry and, you know, just the, you know, maybe the rest of my life, you get a chance. Yeah. Right. Like if I have to do, um, symphony work, I'm here in the office right now, you know, um, and it, it, things change a little bit depending on what it is. And because, but also like all of my work is coming into one computer into one cell phone. So you get your personal email, you get your work email, and then maybe you're responsible for another email for another company that you work with or another organization. And then, or maybe some organizations email you to only one address, but maybe you have four different organizations emailing to just your personal email. And so that gets a little tricky because you start, you just see all of it at once. And then if in my head, if I see five different tasks for five different groups that have to get done, that stresses me out. But if I only see one task at one place, then it makes a lot more sense. So you know, for me, I'm trying to find ways to do that digitally and physically that can help sort out things so that I can actually process them yep. because we just get, for me, like it, and I know plenty, I've just had this conversation actually with a group I'm working with about organizing our digital uh, storage space, because, you know, this, uh, if you have a, um, one Google space, one Google drive space for an entire organization's files, that has to be structured really specifically for it to survive. And, you know, bigger businesses have people that do this full time and they just, that's their job is to design these systems and the rules for them <laughs> versus like a, any nonprofit where it's one person is doing 25 people's worth of work all the time. Right. And then you do that on a team of only five people who also are the performers. 
as well. They also had to learn the notes too and design the flyers and sign, you know, send out the contracts and book the venue, all that stuff. Right. And that's normal for us, but you know, you have to understand how to separate things out so that it's not all at once all the time. Um, can you tell I've been thinking about this a lot lately? Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of I have a lot of more thoughts about this. No, it's it's good. It's good. It's good to hear. Your time at Mizzou. What at what point was it either offered to you or suggested that uh, you and then by a turn Stephen and Emily stay for a third year? That's a good question. So I don't know the full process, but I remember when COVID started really coming into the news in the States, especially when cases were confirmed in the States. And then Columbia had a, I think it was a 30 day stay at home order, right? Pretty quickly after the campus shut down. Yeah. It was like a week or two. Um, And that was, I don't even know if there were any cases confirmed in Columbia yet at that time. I think, you know, a lot of areas just kind of followed that trend of just, we're just shutting down. Right. I mean, Mizzou shut down, so quickly, yeah. which is very interesting to compare that to now where it's hard in the other direction, really like they'll never, but at that point, I remember having some phone calls with Dr. Arns and I remember being really skeptical about the world going back to normal. I think I remember actually telling either one of my parents or a friend and I was like, I don't think this is going to be over until like the end until like 2023. I remember throwing that year out. I was like, this does not seem like something small. And well, here we are. <laughs> um, and at that point, I was also really, you know, like, like a lot of musicians, we had so many things, events canceled. And for me, like doing events is why I like being in the arts. I love collaborating with other people. I love creating something fantastic with other people. And Actually, I had, you know, campus closed on a Wednesday and that next Sunday was supposed to be a recital that I, that a duo recital that I was playing on or that I was putting on with um, one of the previous students and, and that got shut down and that was going to be my first like real recital in my degree. And I was really excited about the program and we were working our butts off to get it prepared because one of the pieces came late. And so we were, we were spending a lot of time trying to get this stuff put together and then it all got shut down. Um, new music ensemble was supposed to go on a tour to South America in May of 2020. And obviously I'm still upset that that didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, it's no one's fault. Right. It's the smart thing to do, but I, I would have loved to have gone to South America to play music. Are you kidding? <laughs> I remember saying like, okay, all these performances are canceled and I'm getting a performance degree. I would really like to perform so can we, like, is there a possibility, even if we get like another degree or something to extend the offer? And so I remember talking to one professor about that. And then they started talking to the other professors to say like, okay, is this going to work? And then it seemed like a lot of people that were either gr- going to, gr- had started the degree at that time or, you know, either their degree path was going to overlap um, spring and fall 2020. And so a lot of those people got the offer of a third year and it's extreme. I'm so unbelievably grateful that they extended all of so many people's TAs for a third year. 
I mean, that's, it's, it's awesome because other people, you know, their schools just lost out right. completely. All of a sudden they were supposed to have like 20 more concerts that semester and nothing. And then they couldn't do auditions either because auditions were shut down and, or, or whatever they couldn't, they could try to make their own groups, but no one watches virtual concerts. <laughs> like I, I mean, I've watched a few, but I think we all burnt out of it real quick. You know, there's just, especially when everything we do, there's so much online, so many online parts of our lives now. It's like, okay, no, I want to go see a show. That's, that's really it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how that worked out. And really it allotted me, you know, I remember when I added a fifth year to my undergrad, I thought, I can't believe I'm going to stay here for another year, but it was the best decision I ever made because it allowed me to actually focus on things longer and my academic load could be lowered a little bit because I also worked and I worked during this degree as well, a lot outside of the school and being able to do that, have time to get community experience, like with real or not even community experience, but other organizations in other parts of the country too. Um, and then being able to do extra recitals. Like I got to learn a ton more pieces because I stayed an extra year with, you know, mentors and I got to play in more ensembles and things like that. So, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not thrilled that it didn't go the way that I wanted to, but it actually probably worked out better because I got the third year. I mean, I, I was so, so bummed about everything for so long that I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe I will continue a third year, even if I don't get the TA extended, maybe I'll just take on that debt. I don't know, because it just, at the time it was hitting me so hard. Um, I'm glad I didn't have to do that. (laughs) You considered that sounds like. I, I did really heavily. I was looking at the numbers and like trying to think about what classes I could take to minimize the amount that I would actually have to pay. And at that point I was already a a Missouri resident anyway. I declare residency pretty early. Um, so I was like, okay, well I can get in-state tuition now. So maybe it would be okay if I only did a couple of classes, you know, like lessons and then, you know, just a few. So, but yeah, I, I remember like sitting down and doing all the numbers and then also anticipating that tuition would raise significantly after shutdowns, which it has again, yeah. but. Well, well uh, Jordan, let's back up. Where did you? Okay. So I grew up in a small town in central Utah called Richfield. And I lived there until I was about eight, uh, 15. 14 at the end of my eighth grade year. No, 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 no. At the end of my freshman year of high school. Um, I lived in Richfield for a few more months while my family moved to another town because I had some classes that I wanted to finish. And I would have gone back to junior high, actually, if I would have moved to school districts and I didn't want to go from high school back to junior high. Wow. Because it was, a, I was in a four-year high school and I was moving to a three-year high school. Oh, I see. So... Yeah. But anyway, my fam family moved to this town called price, like the price is right. Price, Utah. Um, and that's where I graduated high school. And so that's really kind of where I consider where I'm from, even though I only lived there for a few years, 
but that's where like my life's kind of started to establish itself. So do you have any family members in the arts? Professionally? No. In the culture that I grew up in, it's pretty common for people to be do things like piano lessons or voice lessons. It's a church heavy culture. So even if they don't take lessons, they still participate in church choirs or the choirs at school and stuff like that. So it's pretty typical for people to be able to play through simple piano stuff. And in the, the small towns that I grew up in, which were about 7,000 people or so, um, yeah, it was pretty typical for there to be plenty of piano players around. But um, neither of my, my mom played viola when she was young, but I mean, she doesn't even remember what an alto clef is at this point. So um understandably though that's fine <laughs> how many of us do these days <laughs> i know i have to relearn it every time i see one <laughs> yeah yeah uh, um i had an uncle and a grandma that played piano regularly and so my uncle actually is the one that started introducing me to um to classical rep and well first romantic rep because it's romantic music ever you know mm-hmm. and I think one of the first pieces he showed me was, or set of pieces was Rachmaninoff's four piano concertos, which are still some of my absolute favorite pieces, which for a long time, I knew those pieces really well for a long time because just because I listened to them so much. And so when I started learning percussion, it's like, oh, the Rachmaninoff cymbal excerpt. It's like, oh wait, I already know this piece really well now. I've listened to it seriously, probably a thousand times. I loved that. Um, But the first piano concerto is my favorite. Really? Everyone loves the second. Yeah, so many people like the second one, but I love the first one. Uh-huh. I think it's the bass drum and the cymbals at the end. Mm. I really think that's it. My comment, I said, they somebody played, this was a few a number of years ago, but at the Missouri Symphony in the summer, somebody played the second concerto. Oh, yeah. It, it was awesome. And I said, that, I know that this is not Rachmaninoff's reaction, but I was like, did he write that and go this is a hit. Like, <laughs> I mean, cause it like that second movement is like, oh. and particularly the, when it was played so well that I was just like, mm-hmm. this is the best. Like, <laughs> How much better does this get? And Jordan even likes it. And it's, and it's tonal. It's strange. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I like tonal. <laughs> I like tonal. I actually had an, I had an incredible experience recently. I, a couple of weeks ago, I came across a, a BBC Proms mm-hmm. um, performance of Mahler 2, which is my favorite Mahler. Mm-hmm. I love Mahler 2. Oh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. And it's Dudamel and the Venezuelan Youth Orchestra. That It's that recording. A lot of people have seen it where they're playing a tam-tam that's like seven feet tall. Like, <laughs> And there's two, of course, there's two timidists because dub. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and they're playing incredibly... And and then when the vocal parts and the organ come in at the end, it's just, oh, it's so gorgeous. Yeah. I remember it was like right after, like in the middle of some serious projects and stuff about a month or I guess maybe two months ago. And I was so stressed out and I actually had time to like go home and make dinner that day, which was the first time that it happened in I don't know how long. I was like, I'm going to listen to Mahler because it's one of my favorite pieces. And sometimes you just need a reminder mm-hmm. of like why you like it. And by the end of the piece, I was just sitting on the couch with tears. Just, <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so you talking about that second movement, 
it's, yeah. it's you know that's what it made me think of like that's oh, the Tiffany parts are so good in that piece I when you told me when you set that up I was like I'm sure that Jordan was a puddle just like at the end of that just listen <laughs> yeah it was oh it was so good it's so good and what's what's even more insane and I didn't realize this until the almost the end the two timpanists they played the entire piece memorized both of them mm, wow holy crap that's well, so intense yeah and i mean dude always does things memorized that's his thing right but then his two timpanists decide to do that and they have all these mallet changes they're doing constantly and they play it perfectly i just can't imagine memorizing a timpani part yeah for for that long of a piece it just holy crap yeah that's so impressive yeah of course it sounded perfect yeah so that's um yeah anywho (laughs) so what's your way in then to percussion my mom put me in piano lessons when i was eight Mm -hmm. i took those lessons for three years and i begged her to quit i wanted to quit so bad only because the teacher wouldn't let me play the music I wanted to play. She wanted me to play church hymns Uh and I really did not want to play church hymns. I wanted to play fun music, which was way too hard for me Mm -hmm. at the time, but I still wanted to learn it one note at a time, you know? Um, So I stopped taking lessons. Um, Like I wouldn't learn my scales or anything. I just wanted to learn the pieces that I wanted to learn. Yeah. Um, Oh my lord! I started trying to learn a list piece. Okay. <laughs> at ten, of course. I can still does. play the first line from memory. <laughs> I can still play the first line. That's how much I learned it one note at a time. <laughs> <laughs> that teacher probably thought I was an idiot. Yeah. You know, like this kid is insane. Yeah. Well, um, fair, like I wouldn't even learn my scales or anything. If that's you now, like dealing with another 10-year-old who wanted to do that, you, you would have the exact same reaction probably. I know. That's the thing. I'd say like, okay, we got to do this first. We gotta, you know, I'm trying to get better at thinking about ways in which I can massage that a little bit because, I mean, that's why I quit, you know? Yeah. And then I just started learning music on my own, just like piano pieces that I wanted to learn. And like, um, I don't know. At one point, somehow I got a fan of the opera book for piano and so i started learning all the songs from that yeah. um which was so which was fun like um uh i think there was this is when glee was getting really big too <laughs> um a few years later yeah um and i had a, a book of songs from glee the easy arrangements you know um and a few other things just one-off pieces that i really liked um starting middle school i I was sitting in band. I wanted to do band. Originally I was going to do trombone with my friend because she wanted to play trombone and we were best friends. And then me being extremely shy at 12 years old, sitting in band and I'm in a row and there's a ton of guys before me. And he's just going one, the, our director is going one instrument or one person at a time saying like, what do you want to play? Blah, 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 blah. These are the instruments you can choose from. Percussion was not an option for sixth graders. Um, you had to be in seventh grade and you had to audition for it later. Everyone had to play wind instrument to learn how to read pitches. That was the the logic there, which is fantastic. But there was a bunch of guys before me and I got 
peer pressured because all these guys said they want to play trumpet. And I was like, trumpet? I'll play trumpet. (laughs) And then I tried to play trumpet for three years, got braces, got them off during those three years. So that was awful. Mm -hmm. Trumpet and braces don't work. It sucks. My lips would bleed Mm -hmm. pretty regularly. And the thing is, I actually tried to practice the trumpet. And in my eighth grade year, he started offering extra percussion after school classes. So it was twice a week you come and work on percussion ensemble rep as a non-percussionist. And I loved that. And then I started doing bass drum and marching band that summer for the high school because I was going from eighth grade to ninth grade. And by the end of that summer, I said, hey, you know, I really would like to do percussion ensemble in high school. And he said, okay, do you want to just do percussion and wind band too? And I said, um, sure. And then at the end of that, my ninth grade year, I moved to a new town. But his parting words to me were, Jordan, I know you tried to practice the trumpet so much. You were so dedicated. But you were not a good trumpet player. Mm -hmm. He said, you were a much better percussionist. And he was right. (laughs) So I played the trumpet a little bit in high school in a few scenarios when I actually had a better understanding of how to learn. But just to also see if I could actually kind of do it. I still remember a ton of the fingerings. I don't know. Yeah. But that's it. (laughs) Um, And then started percussion and just kept going and um, did a bunch of um, college honor bands in high school. And then my director, my senior year, he just signed me up for an audition at at my undergrad without telling me (laughs) that like he just said, we, we didn't even know. Um, they had other audition days later on the calendar in like February and stuff. This, this, uh, on our band was like January 5th or something. So it was really early. And I had just, I learned, um, one and a half of my solo pieces for, um, for festival that year at that point. And he said, it'll work. It's like, just fine. Just, just go play. I had also like never had a percussion lesson in my life at that point. And then I just played, um, and I mean, it worked out. I went to that, I went to Southern Utah university, um, studied with Dr. Lynn Vartan and that was an amazing experience. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic time. And then that then ended up in Missouri and here we are. So yeah. That's kind of that path. Gotcha. So why was your family in Utah? That's where I'm from. And um, their family had been there forever. Um, yeah, on both my mom and my dad's side, they have several generations that are from Utah. So really, I actually don't know the family history well enough to know how mm-hmm. the past two there. Um, it is related to Mormonism. Um, my family is Mormon and I was raised Mormon. Um, I'm way, I'm very much not a part of that organization anymore for my own personal reasons. Sure. Um, of course. And I think that's how my family got there. Um, I can't imagine what are the reasons. I didn't know if they, would they, what did your, I'm curious, what did, what did your family do? Like what are your, your, you know, to living, making a living? 
my dad, he worked in a ton of restaurants and managed them for a long time. Um, there were three different restaurants. And then he got a job being a surveyor for an engineering firm in the area. Yeah. And, um, which he loved. He, my dad had started going to school for engineering, but then uh, dropped out because he was making more money in restaurants. But then he ended up working for an engineering firm later on. And then his, the firm that he was working for opened up an office in another town. So that's when my family moved. They offered him a promotion if he was willing to move. And they, were, they would also help pay for the move and stuff. So that was great. Um, while I lived in Richfield, my mom was a, um, a daycare provider in our home. So um, at, the, at, the time, the, uh, at the time, I only had four. It was me and three, three of my siblings, so the four of us. Um, and then she would have like eight daycare kids in the house at the same. So like 12 kids at a time in the house, wow. five days a week. <laughs> I don't, I can't imagine. How, how did she do that? I would lose my mind. Right. That's just, I mean, running, uh, running a rehearsal of high schoolers is one thing, but like them in your house and most, of, most of her, most of her kids were, you know, six or seven and under. Yeah. Like real, you know, like some of them would go to pre-K and then come to her um, or just not go to pre-K, you know? Yeah. So, and then um, when we moved, she said she wasn't going to do that again, partially because they sold their house, but my parents were only going to rent for a while. So she was like, okay, what, what else do I want to do? And she had gotten certified as a state nail technician. So she just does people's nails. Huh. Um, and she's been doing that for years. So she has her own, her own business that she runs out of our living room, which is great because she wanted to be a stay at home mom, but she's like, She's a super busybody, so she's like, I'm always going to work. Like, I have to. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I might as well make money if I'm going to do it, too. Plus, she she's very social, and so having one-on-one with clients, she just talks to a ton of different people every day. Oh, that's that's where they are now. So That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I mean, that's always the thing with knowing, like, a group of our friends who have kids uh, uh-huh. where – there's a lot of times when, and this your mom may be the same way, where they like legit need some adult time. And why not for your mom, I'll do nails and I'll talk to another adult and I will get both of those things done at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when she was doing daycare, it was uh, for her, it was um, she did a Zumba class a lot mm-hmm. um, or she had I think she had a friend she went to the gym with and stuff too or it was just like grocery shopping (laughs) (laughs) because i mean she worked in the home too right right so she was like i'm leaving yes and we'd be like where's mom and four hours later she finally comes back from the store yeah and (laughs) she probably i i don't know i got like coffee or just sat in silence for her (laughs) (laughs) that's what i do just like sit in the car and just drive two blocks away and just sit on my phone or something for a minute. I mean, I kind of, in a way, I kind of do that now. Like when I need separation time from the rest of everything, yeah. I go to a movie by myself because yeah. I can get a cold drink, a snack. It's a dark room. And if you go in the middle of the day when you're stressed out, you can turn your phone off 
and just like put it in your like pocket or on the ground in your jacket or something. And then I just have to sit there in a dark room and no one's allowed to talk. It's fantastic. (laughs) It's perfect. It's better than going to a library. It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) That's all. If you ever see me by myself in a movie, I don't want to be talking to It's a ten, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I should have a do not disturb sign yeah. right on my, like hanging around my neck or something, right? <laughs> Jordan, front front part of the shirt, Jordan is in his happy place, back, back, uh, backside. Do not disturb. If you talk to Jordan, he will no longer be in his happy place. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. While you were growing up and when you're doing all the, the, a lot of the music stuff, but were you involved mm-hmm. in anything else? Did you do, was it a lot of, a lot of church-based stuff? Did you do any sports? Did you do student government? Was anything else part of mm-hmm. it? Some church stuff. I did Boy Scouts for a while. Um, that's about as far as that went. To be quite honest, I was like, even er- quite early on, actually, I was disassociating myself from the church as much as I could when I was like 12. Mm-hmm. So and I think it's important to say that because it's not a lie. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, other people may not mention things like that sometimes, but for me, it's important. In high school, I started doing um, tech work with the theater department. Oh, okay. I did that for a little bit. I can't, That kind of dropped off um, when I moved. I tried a little bit, but I didn't really like the director at the time. Um, then they got a new director my last two years of high school and then I got really involved in it again. So, you know, I have experience with um, sound and light equipment, less so with light equipment, more sound, which has come in real handy with this music path. Um, And like, you know, when I started working with uh, Hickman's marching band, front ensemble has to deal with miking in it, you know, or just amplification, right? And sound effects and things like that. And like, I already knew all that stuff. Partially also because of the rep I've played, honestly. I've had to figure out a bunch of electronics like mm-hmm. pretty early on, and they interest me. So, you know, it's really... I'm glad that that happened because it, um, it is an interest of mine. I think that audio stuff is really interesting. Um, not that I have the expertise to become like a full-time recording person, but I can like limp my way through things if I need to. And I don't feel um, completely incompetent <laughs> around it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's nice that like they kind of blended together. Um, um, other interests, I don't know. I just kind of, I got a job at a pizza place and I just worked a crap ton of hours yeah. as well, which was fun. I loved it actually. Yeah, It was so much fun. Um, but that was also like, you know, an excuse to like just stay busy or to like just stay out. And I had coworkers that were my friends. So it's like, oh, I get to hang out with my friends. Cool. <laughs> and then, and then it was, uh, just off to undergrad yeah. after that. No, no real sports. My dad tried, he tried, but there's a reason I never did sports. I can't, I, as you maybe saw at some of the, the attempts of me trying to hit a volleyball at our percussion party, I obviously it wasn't just you a musician. There. Yeah, I know. It's the group of people. Who... We're a bunch of nerd, nerdy musicians, right? Yeah, that's really funny. That haven't held a, a, or played a sport in years. Yeah. <laughs> or like the once a year we, any of us do it. Right. I was actually, I was hanging out with, um, with Bill. Cal- oh yeah. Blankos yesterday. And I said, uh, it was a lot of, uh, very short rallies. We'll say that. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had a yeah. good time watching. It was fun. <laughs> oh yeah. 
we love just that we can be silly, you know, yeah. with each other and just like, it's a good time. That's the important part, right? Of course. When you get to Southern Utah, you said this is the first time you're taking lessons, right? Yeah. That's so, kind of oh, insane. Yeah. And so, I mean, does Lynn just kind of sit there and go, okay, we're starting from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So I had taught myself a lot of mallet stuff in high school mm-hmm. um, and just other things like, um, so actually I came into undergrad with like, I don't know if you know this piece, um, Wild Rose by Ivana Bilic. No, I don't. It's a five octave solo. It's a super groovy. Um, but I had that, like when I started, but let's say when I moved into the dorms and then I was like trying to get my keys and stuff so I could practice. And really the only practice room was actually her office for percussionists besides the rehearsal hall. We had, there were rooms in another building, but no, no real marimbas or, um, no timpani, um, no drum set over there. Sometimes like if people had a recital and they were doing multi-solos, they would just haul all that gear to a remote building but we could only practice in that building after 5 p.m. because it wasn't soundproofed. Mm. And there were other classes in that building. But I'm trying to get access to the rooms and stuff. She's like, oh, yeah, you you know, this room is free around these times. You can practice then and blah, blah, blah. And um, so I came in, like, wanting to play really hard uh, for mallet rep. It's kind of similar to trying to play really hard piano rep when I was young. Right, yeah. <laughs> I still hadn't figured that out yet. Um and yeah, so I came in like playing hard four mallet rep real quick. But then our first lesson, I really thought I was like, okay, you know, I can play my And she was like, okay, so the snare drum. <laughs> Cause I played marimba and timpani for her on my audition. Yeah. She only required, uh, yeah, out of the main areas, she only required you to play in two of them. I mean, it's a smaller school um, with small feeder schools. So that makes a lot of sense. Day one, it was just like, okay, this is snare drum. That's what we're starting with, which is so typical anyway, you know. But for her, she was like, okay, this is someone that has heavily been a mallet kid. Um, We need to learn how to play the snare drum well. And uh, kudos to her. I remember her saying, like, doing, saying the right thing so that I, so that I, she knew how to trick me to being engaged with it mm-hmm. a little bit. Also lessons with her, every single one of them was so much fun. The way like private lessons with her for me, like I loved how she directed ensembles and her ears are fantastic for working with groups. It's awesome. Um, but one-on-one lessons, like you could give her a little bit and she would just do this with it. Mm-hmm. You would come out of that lesson having learned a million different things that you had no idea would were going to be even possible. But I know that's through a lot of effort on her part too, which I'm sure can be extremely draining, but you know, yeah, those, those are fantastic. Um, and then we kept going, um, you know, it was kind of the same thing when I started learning drum set the next year. Um, cause that's how she had her curriculum based out. It was, uh, mallets all freshman year, snare drum heavy first semester and then timpani more timpani heavy the next semester dependent on what other material you might want to work on she was also pretty flexible with what you wanted to work on so it was great because i got to 
I, she didn't just always give me a piece and say, you have to play this one. Like I actually had input, which was awesome. So what was the ensemble experience like there? Large ensembles. There is concert jazz band. There is wind ensemble, wind symphony, one of those, something, one, one wind band, and then one orchestra. Both of those ensembles on the medium size. Um, and then there is marching band and drumline as well. And then percussion ensemble was split between percussion ensemble and then advanced percussion ensemble, meaning um, normal percussion ensemble was one hour a week. And then the other one was four hours a week, but they overlapped. So it was usually we would do like a big piece or two that involves like 12 people for the first hour. We do do like two of those pieces. And then the rest of it was more chamber stuff. Usually I remember my first semester because she's like, okay, well, you love playing mallets, so um, I'm going to put you with all the seniors, and you guys are playing Fractalia by Owen Clayton Condon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was a learning curve. Yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> For me, I was like, <gasps> there, there were definitely, I think there were two lessons where she was, like, sight-reading the other part, and I was just and working on that with her a couple of times because it was just, like, so beyond what anything we had done in my in my high school program because it was a pretty small town so which was and my high school was more drumline heavy Mm. that was the percussion ensemble really was drumline most of the time and then those of us that met and like did a quartet after school or before school that's kind of what it was but yeah i remember getting that that pairing and i was like oh this is scary (laughs) but it was so much fun i mean for me, like I finally had people that were like when you're when you're in a really small program, there might only be like two kids in the program that can really read music even. That happens all the time in so many schools. And you know, like I finally had people that were way 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 better than me. Mm-hmm. Um so it was an exciting challenge. And also people that were just interested in playing cool rep too or that could show me other cool things about the percussion world. So, and I, and I did drumline and marching band all five years that I was there, but the fifth year I was just the director's assistant. Um, some playing when needed, um, but mostly running around with a headset on. <laughs> what instruments were you playing for drumline? So in high school, um, I did a little bit of quads, mostly bass four or five. And then in undergrad, I always—I think I was always on bass four. That's my favorite place to be too. I I love bass line. I think it's so cool. I don't care. Who cares about the snare drum? Whatever. <laughs> it's just loud and there's a lot of notes. But bass drum, you actually like get—you know—you get something. It's like it's the more ensemble. It is. It is. And I like creating something with other people. So now we're back to that the thing, right? Um, yeah, I loved I loved marching bass. That was fun. Was where that school is located? Was it very different from where you grew up? Not necessarily. Uh, the town I grew up in was about an hour and forty five minutes um, north of Cedar City, which is where Southern Utah University is. Um, you start to get into the more Red Rock deserty portion of, of Utah once you get to Cedar City. Um, there's a little bit of that in my hometown. You know, Cedar City was like an hour and a half from Bryce Canyon, um, an hour and a half from Zion National Park and stuff like that. It was also only like two hours from Vegas Yeah, as well. That's an important one. Yes. 
I mean, it's it's still a desert. It's still hot, still dry. <laughs> but then can snow a lot in the winters sometimes. So, you know, it's high desert. That's why it can snow, right? So, yeah. um, but I loved that, you know, actually um, my undergrad while I was there got the title of um, University of the Parks so, because it has a partnership with the National Park Service. Oh, okay. Um, for the state. Yeah. So, so a lot of our degrees actually are taught uh, or the degrees with geology and stuff are taught in classes where you have to live in Zion national park for the summer for your degree. That's just a requirement. Darn it. (laughs) I have to live in a gorgeous national park for three months. Dang. How will I make it? (laughs) I know. (laughs) I get to be outside for three months and like, in the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful areas, like, come on. (laughs) I didn't get to do that, but I knew of people that did. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, what was, what what kind of stuff was your, uh, recital rep back then? I ended up doing four recitals. My junior one was my first one. And I think that was just like checking the boxes, like a marimba solo and, a snare drum solo, a timpani solo, a chamber piece, and then something else could be world or, or multi. I'm trying to remember what I played on that. So for four mallet, I either played A2 to E minor, A2 to E minor by Peistrung or Niflheim by uh, uh, Chaba Zoltan Marjan. Love that piece. It's one of my favorite pieces to play. I actually am considering relearning it right now because it's been enough time. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, be coming at it from a very different vantage point now. So I think that would be fun because at that time I was just learning it and memorizing it one note at a time. And it's a tricky piece to phrase too, because it is, it shifts so much because it's, it's almost through composed. Hmm. Almost. Yeah. Um, here's another piece called Lemorium that I played the duo of that I really loved. That piece is a little bit more programmatic at least in the um, phrase wise to me, I put together a, res- a chamber recital with my friend, with two friends and I play Blue Ridge by Michael Burrett. That was a duo we did. I think Into the Air might've been on that program. Departures by Sejanay. There was a Debussy trio that I played vibraphone on. So my senior recital, my, I kind of did two had a chance to play some pieces uh <laughs> for senior recital i was just using a lot of my audition rep mm-hmm. because so i did the recital in the fall actually so that i could have recordings before audition or before applications were due um so i had toccata by anna ignacowitz mm-hmm. probably my favorite marimba solo of all time right which you know <laughs> playing it a lot yeah as someone that yeah and then I had um, Tajin. It's a multi-solo with track. Mm-hmm. But it starts with like three minutes of uh, Horopo, Horopo-style Maraca playing. Okay, yeah. And so I did it by like wandering the stage and stuff. And then you jump over to the setup, and which has some slightly um, open instrumentations, for, um, but within certain parameters of like number of metals, number of skins, stuff like that. It's, I'm, I'm blanking on the composer. I'm really bad at remembering a full title, 
either I remember the title or I remember the composer, but I usually don't remember both. <laughs> uh, Tantrum, the snare solo by uh, Kevin Bobo. The Gender of Metal by Casey Cangelosi. I did the first three movements, um, which is just a bunch of little bells and uh, like desk bells and um, a triangle and stuff like that. And putting wind up music boxes on the tim- on timpani and uh, pitch bending, um, stuff like that. I loved playing that piece, and that's when I started to get into like more new music style setups and sound profiles and things like that. Um, that was really. I remember when I was looking for a piece, and it's like I need something that is like very different. I just need something that feels so different than everything else I'm doing, um, which. Oh, another Casey piece that I did, I think I did this on my junior recital, was um, The Big Audition, mm-hmm. which is a crash cymbal solo with track. I love that piece. <laughs> it's so cool. I love that it's a story and then, like, you know, there's the there's the twist at the end. I think everyone should go watch that mm-hmm. video. It's a fantastic video, too. Um, I just think it's a, a really clever piece. Yeah. Um, and it's really satisfying to the audience, too. More and more, I keep trying to find more pieces that are like that, that are very interesting to the player, but also easily, or they're accessible and enjoyable to the audience. Right. But I don't want to always do the same type of stuff. Sure. Like it can't just be a snare solo. That's slightly innovative Mm -hmm. where it clicks on the side a bunch or something or plays on the the stand. Okay, cool. Or play with your your fingers. Or play with your fingers. Oh, whoa, whoa. That's never happened before. Right. No, I think those sounds, I think those sounds are really cool, but to me, like it, if there isn't enough of a timbral shift, it's just not that interesting. Or if it's not, um, theatric enough, it just tends to not be that interesting for a lot of people. Um, that's why I liked aphasia because it was just like, I'm not going to say like, that's a piece that people are like, Oh my God, I love watching that piece. It's so, um, exciting. No, it's weird. It's awkward. That's the point, though. Right. Remind me again how you get connected to Mizzou. When I was a freshman in undergrad, there is a senior who went to TCU, but while he was at TCU, he applied for World Percussion Group. He dropped out of TCU, did World Percussion Group. World Percussion Group started in Vegas that year. It was the first time they had toured through the U.S. Well, it's really their inaugural season. And it's the first time... So it's their first U.S. tour. They were doing two that season um, with completely different groups of people. Same program, but different people, different um, different uh, performance venues. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so that first tour, they started in Vegas, and then they, um, but they lost a bunch of rehearsal time in Vegas because of flights and other things. And then they spent a huge amount of time at my undergrad rehearsing and stuff like that. So I got to watch a bunch of that stuff anyway. So that tour kept going, led them through to Mizzou. Mizzou was one of the stop, the stops. And, um, I, he, and so that person, um, he ended up telling Dr. Vartan that this, that Mizzou was, he was really impressed with the percussion program and it was like something to keep on her radar. And, she was like, oh, okay. And she, her being her, she's organized beyond what I can even comprehend. She has all these spreadsheets and millions of different checklists and things like that. Um, but anyway, so she has this document of 
grad programs and why they might be worthwhile and who teaches there and all that stuff. So she can just share that with her students. It's like, here's a starting place. She was like, you should check that out. And at that point I was like, Missouri, uh-huh. <laughs> you want me to consider Missouri? Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I love it here. I love it here. I really genuinely do. Um, but at the time I was like, this is weird. That year at PASIC, I knew that Mizzou was playing because of the Embira ensemble, but I didn't get a chance to see it. So I was working. So it's funny. I had kind of forgotten about Mizzou for a little bit. And then it was like the week, like three days after PASIC, I was finishing up applications and I was like, oh, that school. I should write. I need to write to that teacher. So then this is already right after pacing. It was like, Oh crap. I could have met up with her, but Oh, well I wrote to her and then, um, got the audition scheduled and stuff. And I came really early in the semester. It was like the second Monday of the semester. I think, um, that same day also happened to be a transient canvas concert. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which was great. I love that. I got to have like, see a full normal Monday plus some guests mm-hmm. and, and I loved their concert so much and i love that rep i think that's so cool but yeah i loved the school i loved the area i loved dr arns um i loved the vibe i got from the studio because i got to participate in everything i got to watch enemy i got to watch uh wind ensemble percussion studio uh world percussion and then a concert like it was like all the stuff that i really wanted and it was all fantastic and dr arns just kind of threw me in like in world percussion, she was like, okay, Jordan, so you're going to learn this part. Like, okay, great. Cool. Keep up. Ah. What kinds of things when you start working with Dr. Orange, does, does she see is like, okay, here are some areas that Jordan needs to work on. What kinds of things does she hope, what do you think that she wanted you to improve upon or you wanted to get more mm. experience? Yeah, I'm trying to remember what we talked about my first semester because I remember her looking at my rep list and looking at just my CV and stuff and like seeing what I like. Okay, she's like, okay, you got these things, but this is what we want to move forward on. And I'm trying to remember. Was like world stuff? Was that one of them? I think world was, yes. We had a little bit where we did, we had some uh, Darbuka lessons and some Rick lessons and then definitely some, I mean, Marimba kept going because that's just something I have always kept going. She wasn't worried about the chamber stuff. I can't really, honestly, I can't even necessarily remember what we talked about. No, cause we changed course so many times sure. just depending on like what was coming up or the pandemic, how we were feeling about the progress of things and like why, you know, is it truly worth it to work on this or not? Nothing big. It was more just really like, what was awesome is she, she was like, what do you want to do? That's step one. And I was like, okay, I want to do a bunch of recitals. That's one thing I, I do remember saying. And then at the time I was like, I want to have some time to heavily think about a doctorate. If that's the next step I want to do or not. Um, So yeah, we also had a lot of conversations about running ensembles and stuff because I I looked 
out with the the front ensemble tech job for Hickman High School when I got here. They had a vacancy like right before I moved here. Mm. And so, and then I was having lunch with a previous master's student one time and they're like, hey, I don't want to do this or I can't do this or something. If it's still available, are you interested? And I said, yes. And then started working with that. So it was like talking about running a front ensemble and stuff. And Dr. Arns having um, a Vanguard background, I was like, yes, can we, you know, these are the scenarios that I have. So really like there've been so many moments where she's been a life and an educational mentor um, just outside of playing. She's let me just kind of go down whatever creative pursuits I want. But then she's also been a really good sounding board for those ideas and like really saying like, well, why do you want to do that? Is that something, you know, how does that benefit you? And things like that. I don't think there was, I don't know if there was an area where she was like, oh my God, we got to fix this. (laughs) I don't think she would have let me in the program if that was the case. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Depending. Stay tuned for part two with Jordan Nielsen coming next week. This week's rave is the 2022 film Top Gun Maverick, starring Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, John Hamm, Jennifer Connelly, and Miles Teller, among many others, and directed by Joseph Kaczynski, now playing in theaters all over. As I mentioned last week, I'd been out of the country for a couple weeks and recently got back in town. Just before I left... Local friends of mine had planned to go see this right on or about opening night, which was right about the time I was leaving. But now, three weeks after, it was time to go see it, and it was awesome. The end. And that's our... Okay, a bit more. For many, particularly in my age cohort of old people, the original Top Gun was a longtime favorite, a movie that, in many ways, still holds up. I did rewatch it sometime within the last year. There are lots of great parts, great lines, classic music, fight scenes, a certain shirtless volleyball match, you know the drill. I was definitely skeptical of a sequel 35 years in the making, but it appeared that much of my friends on social media saw it and really liked it, so it was time to do it as well. The story as follows. The organization Top Gun seems to be on the chopping block, and Tom Cruise, a.k.a. Maverick, is brought back to the organization to train a new generation of pilots to complete a dangerous mission that many Star Wars fans say resembles one from the New Hope. (sighs) Star Wars. Anyway, among the cohort is Miles Teller, playing the son of Maverick's best friend and fellow pilot Goose, who, spoiler alert from 36 years ago, died during a flight mission. And there's some friction between the two for various reasons. It moves along from there. John Hamm is the admiral giving orders to Top Gun. Val Kilmer returns as ICE, now an admiral in the Navy. And Jennifer Connelly plays a local bar owner who is alluded to in a mostly throwaway line from the original, but now has a substantial supporting role. But it is fantastic. The action sequences are even better than the original. The storyline 
even gets relatively emotional, which includes actual acting from Tom Cruise, which, got to be honest, it's been a while. And they hit a lot of the same beats from the original that worked the first time around. So again, and I mean this with my cohort, it's all there for you. And if it's any indication, I saw the movie three weeks after it came out on a Tuesday afternoon, and the theater was three quarters packed. So that should give you every indication to go see this movie. All right, go see Top Gun Maverick. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at PetesPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Jordan Nielsen. Until then.